All right. Well, good morning. Welcome to uh, Church 21. Let's just catch up on my text messages real quick, and then uh, we'll get going. Uh, let's see. There we go. All right. Boom. Uh, so, so glad you're here in the paradise of Quebec. Isn't, isn't Quebec been like paradise in October a little bit, right? It's like the glorious... Uh, I, I'm, I'm struggling for Celsius conversions right now. I live in a Fahrenheit world, though I live in Canada. So I'm pretty sure at when we become citizens of Canada, they're going to break me in my Fahrenheitness and uh, make me buy into Celsius forever. Uh, but it's just been glorious, absolutely glorious. And Quebec is going to become less like a paradise, except for you weirdos who love snow and uh, purgatory and uh, shoveling out of that mess. And anyone who went, woo, has never parked a car on a street before, apparently, uh, because that is brutal. You're a masochist for having a car in Quebec. But Seriously, we love paradise. We love the idea of paradise. We, we long for Cuba in the middle of winter. We long for somewhere warm with aqua blue uh, seas that we've never seen such a color in this area of North America, but there it exists, right? We long for paradise. It's deep within us. And here's why I think we long for paradise. One, I don't believe, and I have no evidence to, to prove this, but I don't believe we were made to live in temperatures that we live in. No amens. Amen, Dwight. Amen. I don't believe that, right? And if we believe hard enough, then maybe the snow won't ever come, right? But we, we long for, for paradise. We long for warmth. We long for vitamin D. We long for sun. We long for, for warmth. We, we long for this. And I believe that one of the reasons why we long for this is because this was the type of area that we were made in. We were made, our story as humanity starts in a paradise. It starts in a garden. And when you think garden, think less pumpkin patch, think less zucchini, think more Hawaii, think more lush and beautiful, think less beets, think less Dwight Schrute, more Dwight Bernier dreaming of the Caribbean. Don't ever associate me with Dwight Schrute ever again. I rebuke you for doing that. Oh, I know Dwight. No, you don't. You know a character named Dwight on The Office. That's it. So we, we started in the garden. This is going to be a long morning, I feel. Uh, we started in this paradise. We were made, we believe that God made all things, that God placed us as humans in this paradise, that we were made for him, that he would be our great provider and protector. He would take care of us. We've looked at this during our sex series, but we saw that there was a man and a woman placed there together and called to be fruitful and multiply and make the rest of the earth like this garden, like this paradise. God was everything for us as humans. Soon thereafter, though, in Genesis 3, this, this enemy, this other authority, so-called authority, slithered onto the scene and came in, and he lied to humanity about who God is and who they were. And in essence, humanity had this opportunity to put God on trial. So we, as humanity, became the judges. We put God on trial, and we were weighing in the balance of whether God would be innocent or guilty of the crime that we thought him as. Now this other authority was telling us as humans that God, the only reason that God it doesn't want you to eat of the fruit of this tree is because when you do, you're going to be just like him. Now that's a lie because we were already like him. We were being lied to. We were being duped by this other authority. This was like that Ray-Ban thing that always shows up on your Facebook feed. $19.99 for Ray-Bans. They're not Ray-Bans. Leave me alone, Facebook feed people. Right? It was a lie. It was an absolute lie. But in that moment, in the garden courtroom, humanity found God guilty of a crime. And in their pride, they went to that tree, they grabbed the tree, they took the fruit, pomegranate, whatever it was, and they bit into it. And in that moment, they were enlightened. God had held something back from them. But what he had held back from them was death. What he had held back from them was banishment. What he had held back from them was a future that was going to be devoid of him. 
that God was a good, kind God who loved his people and didn't want for his people to be separated from him. But because of our decision, our verdict on God, we brought a curse on ourselves. We brought death onto ourselves. We brought a banishment onto ourselves that God cast us out of that garden. God cast us out of his presence in that place. And that was for our good as well. Things didn't seem like they were going so well for us as humans. We were alive for a few hours. We hadn't been fruitful and multiplied yet. And we had already gotten kicked out of the presence of God. But God in outstanding grace, okay, grace is like a, a present that's given to you that you don't deserve. That's the whole idea of a present. You didn't deserve it, it's given to you. God makes this beautiful promise to his people before removing them from the garden. And he says this, not 34,000. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That God is going to send someone that's gonna crush evil forever. This is a great promise given to humanity. But now we have to wait for it. So Genesis is the first book in the Bible. Okay, so you deal with this in like the first few pages and most of the rest of the Bible is us waiting thousands of years waiting for this promise to come true for this one to show up. And then what we have is Jesus enters onto the scene. We're gonna talk about Jesus this morning. That Jesus enters onto the scene and he's unlike anyone who's ever lived before. He was causing people who had been born blind to see, causing people who had been born deaf to hear. He was bringing people back from the dead. He was forgiving people's sin. Now, either you're really cruel in doing that or you can actually do that. So Jesus is declaring a righteousness over people in front of God. Jesus is doing phenomenal things. But Jesus was teaching in such a way that no one else was teaching either. So they had rabbis, teachers that would stand in front of people and we would, we would teach and we would say, Rabbi so-and-so says this and Rabbi so-and-so says that and we align with Rabbi so-and-so. Jesus was not talking about rabbis. He was talking about what God had to say. He would teach like this. You heard it said this, but I say to you this. So Jesus is bringing an authority that, that the world really has never, ever seen. And now we have the end of Jesus's ministry, really the end of his life. We're gonna be dealing with the last day of his life this morning. So we're gonna do all of John 18 and 19 this morning. That's a lot. So we're gonna be brief. Now, here's my thing right away. There are specific things we're not gonna deal with this morning. Number one, Peter denies Jesus. We're not even gonna look at that this morning. We're gonna look at that in two weeks when we look at John chapter 21. So don't, before you accuse me of like, he's not even bringing the text in, right? It's like, I'm putting the text up here on the screen for you, so back off, okay? Uh, I'll get to it. We'll wrap up the rest of John uh, with all of the text. But John 18, chapter one, here we go. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook, Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. So what we have here, okay, I, there's gonna be a lot of imagery going on, okay, because it's in the text and it's in the Bible, all right? So we have a garden. What do we know about a garden before? That's where God placed humanity. Now who do we have? We have Jesus in a garden coming to the end of his life. So really what we're doing is we're seeing a garden with a new Adam. The first Adam failed. Now we have a garden with a new Adam. And this new Adam is going to do what Jesus could. No, this new Adam, let me get this right. New Adam is going to do what the first Adam could not do. Now, the book of Romans is a book in the New Testament. I want to read a couple verses, then we'll get back into John. Romans 5, 14 says, death reigned. When Adam and Eve took and ate from that tree, death began to reign and rule. From Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who is a type of the one who was to come. Verse 17, for if because of one man's trespass, sin, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness uh, reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. 
So Jesus is bringing something that the first Adam could not do. Jesus was back. There's a reenactment of the garden actually taking place. You have God here. We believe that Jesus is fully God and yet he was fully man. So we have God in a garden again. And just like Adam and Eve were disappointed with God, they wanted a different view of who God was. So Jesus had people who were disappointed with him. Primarily Judas. Judas, one of Jesus's 12 primary followers, ended up betraying Jesus. We see it in John 18, two and three. Judas who betrayed him also knew the place for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers, some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Judas was ready to betray Jesus because in John chapter 12, 12 or 13, one of those two, um, in John 12, 13, Judas became incredibly disappointed with who Jesus was because he knew Jesus wasn't just going to be about Judas. He wasn't in it to make Judas rich. Some of us have viewpoints of Jesus that are just wrong. If you think that Jesus is your sugar daddy and you follow him well enough, he's gonna make you rich, you're wrong. Absolutely wrong. And yet that is a good news that's being propagated and spread all over the world called the prosperity gospel. And it's so bogus. And people are being duped in. And it all sounds good, but it's a lie. Judas wanted a prosperity Jesus. Jesus wouldn't be that for him. And so Judas betrayed him. That Jesus was betrayed for you and I. I want for us to understand that we're in this text. That Jesus was betrayed by humanity, by, by one of his closest followers for us. I'm sure all of you have been betrayed. It's a horrible feeling to think that you're walking a certain way with a person that you trust, you've taken confidence in, and then you find out that they don't feel the same about you and they're just using you to get what they really want and they betray you and they throw you under the bus. It's a horrible feeling. Jesus is experiencing this for us. And what Jesus does when all of the, the, the soldiers come Jesus doesn't hide. Oh no, the robbers are here and run away. Jesus steps up and takes responsibility. We heard this in the text that David read for us earlier. Let me just highlight verse eight. They asked him again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. Jesus doesn't hide, and not only does he not hide, but he's saying, I'm gonna take responsibility for everyone here. This is in stark contrast to Adam in Genesis. When God comes to Adam, Adam blames his wife right away. Adam blames God first, uh, the woman you made, God. Let me remind you of that. Uh, if you didn't make her, I wouldn't be in this position, but uh, she's the one. It's on her. Jesus doesn't say, arrest these guys. These are the guilty ones. Jesus said, me, take me. I'm gonna take responsibility for all of them. We're gonna look at the kingship of Jesus, but it's phenomenal when you have a leader who isn't blaming things on everyone else, who isn't trying to build walls around their country to keep people out, but someone who takes ownership for the responsibility that they have as a leader to help make things right. So we have this new Adam who's unlike the first Adam in so many ways. And Jesus announces why he was there and why he came. Here we go, John 18, verse 11. Jesus said to Peter, Peter cut off someone's ear, by the way, we'll talk about that in a few weeks. Um, Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. If you ever feel bad about yourself, like, man, I don't feel like I'm really following Jesus well, just be like, oh, I haven't cut off anyone's ear today, all right? So there you go, some encouragement for you. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? This is a question that Jesus is asking. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given to me? Jesus says, this is why I've come. I've come for this cup and this cup we find out in the Old Testament is not a cup that you want to drink. This cup is a cup of wrath. It's a cup for the nations. Jeremiah in the Old Testament says this, thus the Lord, the God of Israel said to me, take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath 
If you ever get a wine that says the wine of wrath, just leave it alone. Walk to Jacob's Creek. That's a good, nice, cheap wine, all right? Uh, Australian, I like that. Uh, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. That this cup of wrath is for the nations. Because of what Adam did in the garden, there was this cup that's being filled up with the wrath of God against humanity. Whoa. This is wild. That God is this God of great justice. He's a good God. He's a perfect God. He always does what is good, right, and true, but he's a God of justice. And if you and I don't meet the expectation that he has, this cup of wrath is for you. This cup of wrath is for me. And it's an eternal cup. You'll never, ever get to the bottom of this cup. Forever separated from him. But here's the good news in this. Jesus says, I'm here for that cup. I'm here to take that cup from the nations and drink it myself. And so this garden scene at the beginning of John 18 ends with Jesus being led away by humanity. The first garden scene had humanity being led away by God to keep them from perpetual punishment, right? Being led out. Now, Jesus, God, is being led out of the garden by humanity, and he's doing so willingly. This is a repeat of Genesis 3. Now we get to the trial. Remember, we as humans put God on trial, and so Jesus was put on trial as well. People just wanted Jesus gone. Isn't that often our reaction? When someone annoys us and bothers us, we just think, man, if they weren't here, then everything would be better, as if we're not part of that problem, right? And, and, and if we're honest, we would just say, yeah, 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 I, I buy into this as well, right? That I'm part of the problem. But we just think that if we can get rid of a person or a thing that somehow we can be made right. And the people just wanted Jesus gone. The leaders wanted Jesus gone. Just like Adam and Eve were saying, we want God gone in the way he's presented himself to us. And anytime we want a different version of God, different version of Jesus, we're not getting the true God. It's us adding on to who he is. And that actually takes away from who he is. So listen to what the leaders have to say. Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. So we have the Jewish leaders delivering Jesus over to Roman leaders. So Pilate is Roman governor over this part of the Roman empire. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. And then, then things get real. Uh, the Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Like we didn't bring this guy here for like a slap on the wrists. We didn't bring this guy here to like take away his, his walking stick for a little while and watch him struggle. I don't, we didn't bring him here for this. Like we want this guy gone. And we're bringing him to you because this is what the law allows for us to do, that you will put people to death who are against us. And so there are three big questions that we're gonna look at this morning. Three big questions that come from Pilate to Jesus about his kingship. And the questions aren't just directed to Jesus, but also to the people that are there. And I believe that these questions are just as applicable to us this morning. And not just if you're a not yet Christian, right? You're still exploring who Jesus is. These aren't just for you. This is for those of us who've been walking with Jesus for a short time or a really long time. So these questions are for us. So the first question we find in John 18, through 37, this is part of the trial, okay? It's a long trial. So Pilate entered his headquarters again, called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. And then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. 
For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So the big question is, are you a king? And not just a king, but are you the king? Are you the king of the Jews? We know a lot of histories about the Jewish people, Pilate would have been thinking. Are you the king of this, of this people group? Because as I look around, there aren't a lot of people following you. No one's with you. To be a king means that you have people, you have a squad, you have a tribe, you have a following. At least a few. No one's with you. So what kind of a king are you? Well, here's the type of king that Jesus is. You see, a good king doesn't look out for himself primarily. A good king thinks about all of his people. Or a good queen thinks about all of her people. A good ruler is about the people, not about themselves. And so what we have here is a juxtaposition between Jesus and Pilate. Pilate being a king over that part of the Roman Empire and Jesus being king of, well, really the world. Pilate, as we won't get to see in depth in this text uh, this morning because we have a lot of other stuff to do, but Pilate is constantly in fear of what's gonna happen to me if I make this decision, if I crucify or don't crucify, what's gonna happen to me? Where Jesus isn't thinking about me. You see, a good king always thinks about his people. And so Jesus does the unthinkable. Jesus steps in willingly to this path of destruction so his people might never have to step into this path. And the paradox in all of this, though Jesus comes in bound with no followers behind him, billions of followers will be behind Jesus because of this one act of being alone. Are you the king? Are you the king? And if we're gonna see Jesus as king, we need to look beyond just, oh, Jesus was a, he was a good guy, he was a nice teacher, maybe he was a prophet, maybe he did some nice things, got some quotes for a coffee mug here and there. Maybe, Jesus is so much more than this. And he's not just a king among kings, he's the king of kings. He is the king that all other kings one day will submit everything to. So are you the king? The second question comes out of John 18, 38 to 40. Thanks for fixing that, Jesse. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside of the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. So do you want me to release the king? Do you want me to release your king to you so that your king can rule and reign in your presence? And what are the people willing to do? Well, they're willing to receive a, a robber, a murderer, someone who is involved in the insurrection at that time instead of Jesus. Now, this is one of the most beautiful pictures of the gospel. The gospel is good news, okay? That's what it means, good news. You imagine being Barabbas, sitting in your cell, thinking, man, when am I just gonna die? When is Pilate gonna get upset and, and drag me out and do something bad to me? Uh, how long am I gonna be stuck here? You're not thinking about future. You're not thinking about freedom. You're not thinking about anything good. And then all of a sudden, someone comes in, opens your cell and says, Barabbas, you're free. Well, well, what do you mean? Like, is this a game? Like, is there a lion out there waiting for me? What, what's happening? No, you're free. Uh, this guy, Jesus, is coming in in your place. He's gonna be locked up in the cell instead of you. You're gonna be free. You're gonna get to go. What? But I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything to deserve this. I know, get up, go, you're free. This is the gospel. See, what religion does for us is it says, yeah, there's this great God who sent down a, a list of rules, 
And if you can follow all of those rules, and if you can keep from doing the really bad ones, then maybe one day God will stick you in this place of purgatory where you can earn all of your other stuff. And Jesus died for you, but not completely to pay everything, but just as a really good example. But ultimately, you need to work your way out. That's what religion says. The gospel says, you're like Barabbas. You're a slave. You're stuck in a Roman prison. There's nothing you can do. It doesn't matter how many times Barabbas wants to go and pray. It doesn't matter how many times Barabbas wants to give to the poor. He's stuck. It takes Jesus coming in, taking his place inside of the cell and allowing for him to go free. That's good news. That's the gospel. That's what Jesus is about. That's what he came for, to bring this kind of truth, to say you can be free. And you might say that's not just. That's not fair. How can Barabbas just leave? Because Jesus is stepping in to actually take Barabbas' punishment. Pilate said, I find no guilt in him. But if he can take Barabbas' guilt and put it onto Jesus, then Jesus becomes guilty. Jesus is the guiltless king who comes, takes our guilt upon himself, goes to a cross so that you and I can be free like Barabbas. And not just a little free, not just, well, I'm gonna keep the handcuffs on so I remember that I, I, I am free, but I'm not really free. You're free, those cuffs are gone. The third question comes out of chapter 19, verses 14 to 16. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Pilate, behold your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So they delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus. They finally have the perfect king. You see, Israel had longed for a king. They wanted to be just like the nations. They asked God, okay, yeah, we get it. You're our ruler, but we want a king that we can see with our eyes. So God gave that to them. And king after king after king disappointed them. They finally have the perfect king. And what do they do? Crucify him. And I just want to make this real for us. That it's not the Jews that crucified Jesus. It's not the Romans that crucified Jesus. It's us that crucified Jesus. There's this beautiful painting by Rembrandt that you will, you will not see uh, in, in all of its splendor, right? That's a pretty lame version of it, all right? But this is the, uh, the painting called The Raising of the Cross. And it's, it's a really nice painting. But Rembrandt did something very interesting. He painted himself into the picture. He painted himself as the one who was responsible for nailing Jesus' feet to the cross. So that he would always remember that it's not this intellectual, ah, yes, Jesus went to the cross because of me, sure. No, I was there. I was the one who was hammering in his feet. I was the one who was mocking him. I was the one that did this. It was because of us. This crucifixion had to happen. It had to happen as Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane before going to the cross. He said, Father, if there's any other way that this can be done, let's do that. But if not, let your will be done. I want to be about your plan, what you want to see take place. And there was silence. And so Jesus raises, is betrayed goes to the cross. And here's what took place. The guiltless one gets put on trial and is found guilty. John 19, this is, this is a somber passage, really is. Um, then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. And they came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. 
And Pilate went out again and said to them, see, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. This is like Pilate's uh, self-righteous deliverance. I really have no part in this. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, behold, the man. Here's what happened. Jesus was flogged. Flogging is a horrific thing that if I described it in the fullness, you would probably throw up a little bit. Some of you anyway. Flogging is the, the cat of nine tails where there are balls uh, of iron, steel, and then there are, there are hooks. And the Romans, they were really good at killing people. That was part of their job. And so they would bring someone and lean them over a post fully exposing their back, oftentimes stripping them naked. And they would begin with those balls, tenderizing the muscles of someone. And then on the other, the other whips, they would have the cat of nine tails that would actually dig in and rip out flesh and sometimes bone from the person that they were flogging. And they would flog people 39 times because 40 they felt would kill them. So they would, they would whip them and flog them to the point of death. And it got to the point where people looked inhuman. And so this was Jesus. The pictures of Jesus on a cross is not this like, you know, little, little slit here from the, the spear. It's like just raw carnage, like full on blood, like Mel Gibson got it right in how he depicted Jesus. And they would turn them over and do the front side as well. It was literally like someone being led to a slaughter. They then took a crown of long thorns and they would have placed it onto Jesus's head. And you would have to push this down. So it was, it was ripping potentially into eyes at that point, right? This is just gross. But thorns were part of the curse that came up out of the ground after humanity rebelled against God. Now Jesus, in a sense, is saying, I'm your king that's wearing the curse on my head. I'm gonna wear your freedom so that you don't have to be under the curse anymore. He was spat upon, which is disgusting. And he's brought out with a purple robe being mocked, saying, behold, the man. In this, men and women, this was for us. This was for us. No one would do this for us. And even if someone would do this for us, step into our place, no one could do it the way that Jesus did it. Because Jesus went through all of this still without sin, without rebellion, without falling into the first Adam. And Tim Keller says it this way, that you are, you are so bad that Jesus had to die. And yet you are so loved that he was glad to die that Jesus wasn't thinking of you being like, ah, dang it, Dwight, right? Like, Dwight, if you wouldn't have done that, I wouldn't be here. He's not thinking that at all. In fact, it says that he endured the cross and despised the shame because of the joy that was set before him. That in this moment, in the most, I mean, it's perplexing to think about, but in this moment, there's joy moving in Jesus because the father sent him to do this and through this, he was earning what we couldn't earn on our own. There's joy. Look at what the prophet Isaiah said in the Old Testament. I think I put it there. I guess not. Well, I'm going to read it for you then. Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, verses 10 and 12. says this. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. This is what's going on. When he's making an offering, he's going to see his offspring. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death, was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. 
that there's joy in this moment for Jesus because he knows that he is accomplishing yours and my rescue, our salvation. We can become part of the people of God because of what he is doing. So he has stepped into the place very much in a Hunger Games type of way. Katniss steps in for her sister to be taken in to battle, likely to be destroyed, right? So Jesus steps in so that we can be freed and we get all of his earnings. We get everything because of what he has done. And so John 19, the end of the cross After this, Jesus, knowing that all was finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And a jar of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. He cries out, I thirst. Now this sponge, the sponge most likely was a cleaning sponge that Romans would have used to clean their backside. Do I need to elaborate any more on that? Nasty the final act of humanity to God on the cross is taking a rear end wiper, putting on a hyssop branch, dipping it in some wine and putting it to Jesus's lips. That's what religion is like. Let me offer you this, but here's the good news. Here's the gospel that Jesus's final act, his final act toward man was offering his body and his blood so that the the curse our curse would be removed. When he had received the sour wine, he said, it's finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Do you know what's amazing? Jesus doesn't die in the sense that he's killed. It says Jesus bowed his head and gives up his spirit. We don't get the choice to give up our spirits. I mean, you can end your life, but you can't be like, okay, yeah, now I'm gonna go. This is what Jesus does. He said, my work is done. It's accomplished, finished, Into your hands, Father, I commit my spirit. This is amazing. This is a king unlike any other king. Because Jesus, in his hanging there, could have done something back to humanity. He could have spit on someone. He could have done anything, at least cursed one of them. But he doesn't. Instead, he cries out from the cross, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. And then he says, it's finished, it's accomplished, it's done. Separation from God, hear this. This is good news, this should move in our hearts this morning. Separation from God is no longer necessary. It's not. Because Jesus has done the work. Jesus was forsaken on the cross so that you and I never have to be forsaken. And now Jesus is with the Father. And they take Jesus' body down off of the cross. And in John 19, verse 35, John testifies, eyewitness testimony, I saw them, right? I saw them, and I'm telling you this so that you believe, because people could have gone to John in the first century when his letter is being circulated, his gospel is being circulated, and they could have said, John, is this true, Right? It verifies and gives validation to the authenticity of Scripture, that there were witnesses to these things. John is saying, he's, he was dead. I saw the soldier put a spear through him. I saw water and blood gushing out of him. I saw that he was dead. He wasn't swooning. He wasn't passed out. He was dead. And then he's taken down. He's laid in a garden. John 19, 41 and 42. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now, maybe you catch what I've been doing. Maybe you don't. So let me explain it. What's happening is that in the first garden, we had Adam who failed and was banished. Death reigned. In this new garden, Jesus shows up, does what what Adam couldn't do. And now it's like we're going back to the beginning again. Because in Genesis chapter two, when Adam is actually made, read this with me. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. 
And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight, good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We have a living creature, Adam, who was laying there until God breathed breath into him. Now we have the second Adam, the better Adam, lying dead in a garden. In essence, just like the first Adam, waiting waiting for God to breathe breath into him again. Next week, we're going to be in John 20. It's very hard for me to end here, (laughs) really hard, because this is not where the end happens. So I'm actually going to ruin the end for you, all right, or ruin next week for you, but still come. It's going to be really good, I'm sure, all right? But we have this new Adam laying there, having accomplished everything for you and for I, and he's waiting. And when The spirit of God raises him from the dead, the same spirit that dwells in you and I because of Jesus's work. When he raises him from the dead, it shows that Jesus has beaten death. No one beats death. Death has always won until that day. And from that day, slowly everything is becoming undone. All sadness is slowly becoming untrue. Because Jesus, the new Adam, will never die again. He is a true and rightful king who has done what the first Adam fell down on the job to do. And this new Adam is not just saying, look at my life, everyone. He's saying, not only look at my life, but I want to give you this life. I want to give you resurrection life that does not end in death. In fact, it ends with a defeat of death. Paul's freaking out in one of his letters where he says, oh, death, where is your sting? Like mocking death. Who goes to a funeral and mocks a body? If you do that, you're really mean, all right? But Paul is saying, oh, death, oh, death, where is your sting? Jesus removed it because Jesus is alive. Death is not, it doesn't get the final word. Jesus does. And so this is good news for us. There's life for any who will ask. Let me end with this. John 19, as Jesus is hanging, Pilate has uh, an inscription made to be put on the top of the cross. Pilate wrote an inscription, put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Imagine this, all Jewish people around and the one who's being hung, this is your king. Now, many of the Jews read the inscription for the place was where Jesus was crucified. It was near the city. It was written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek and talking about this with someone this past week. It's like, this literally was an international event where people were coming in. People from all over were reading what was going on. This wasn't done in a corner of the world. This is like religious epicenter, right? Jesus was most likely not crucified way up there, but most likely just above eye level with people. So the chief priests and the Jews said to Pilate, don't write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. So we end with this. Who's your king? Who is your king? Because the Jews wanted, they were okay with Jesus being someone who said that they were king of the Jews. But who who is your king? This gets pushed out of the text, right? Who is your king? This is a question that demands an answer. And in fact, you answer it all the time through your actions, your devotion, your worship. You're a worshiper all the time as well. You don't worship when you come Sunday. You worship all through the week. Just what do you worship? Who do you worship? So who is your king? Who is your king? Do you worship approval of people? Do you worship your spouse? Do you worship a career? Do you worship a place? Do you worship an idea of paradise? Do you worship an idea of who God is? But no one, and and I'm, I'm saying this wholeheartedly, no one offers the goodness that Jesus offers to you as your king. No king No money, no property, no company, no institution can give you what Jesus is giving to you. No one. Will you see Jesus as the true king? Will you release all other kings? We often hold on to tightly to our kings. 
Ah, oh, that money's mine. Ah, oh, this house is mine. Ah, oh, this position's mine. Ah, oh, these children are mine. Ah, oh, this animal's mine. If it's a cat, if you just squeeze it too hard, it'll die and you'll be a dog person. Um, but it's mine. It's mine. And oftentimes, when, when we get these things that are mine, we're disappointed very quickly with them. Jesus said, you can release those kings. Cat person, you can let your cats go. They're really bad to worship. I mean, literally, you have to scoop out their box, right? Children are a bad god to worship. You have to change their diaper, right? Parents are a bad god to worship because one day you'll change theirs too. That was not appropriate probably, but I, I went there. So who is your king? Will you release them? Will you release the grip of that king? Because you have a great king who wants to give you everything that you truly are looking for and are after. And will you receive this crucified king who came to do what you couldn't do for yourself and did it for you? And like Barabbas, he shows up at your house and he says, hey, you're free. I came to, to become a slave so that you could be free. I came to do something that you could not do for yourself. So what is it that stops you from receiving Jesus like this? And I don't want for us to just think, oh, Dwight's talking to those who aren't yet Christians. No, for those who are followers of Jesus. We hold on to so many things as our ruler. And often us, we want to be the rulers and the ones reigning in our life. But what is it that stops you from waving the white flag and just saying, Jesus, I surrender. I'm, I'm all yours. I'm in it for you. I, I've held on to my finances as a God for so long. Now I have you, my provider, and a generous God. I want to let go of this. I want for you to be the one that's leading in this area. I've tried to control and manipulate my future for so long. Now I have the sovereign one as my king who came and died for me and is alive, who has all authority in heaven and on earth. I can let go of, of being the king over my future, and you can be the true king. What is it that stops you? Today, Jesus says, you can wave your white flag. I am the king that you have been looking for. And so what we see in this text is that Adam fails at being a king, just like you and I fail at being the king. We really do. But what we have is Jesus as the new king, the true king, who does perfectly for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. One of the things I want for us to leave here doing is, is telling Jesus continually that you are my king. You are my king. When you see areas that, that pop up where you wanna be the Lord, you wanna be the prime minister, you wanna be in charge of that, you remind yourself, oh, no, you're the king. When you see deficits in your bank account, you don't know how those are gonna be filled. Ah, you're the king. When you see your children going a certain way, you're like, I don't know how we're gonna be able to get them back. Ah, you're the king. When you don't see how health is ever going to be stamped on, on your sheet ever again, ah, you're the king. When you see religious failure over and over and over and over and over, ah, you're the king who actually calls me to leave religion and turn to you, to give up. This is the good news of the gospel. And we have to be people who preach that to our heart all the time. Otherwise, we'll find our hands around new kings all the time that cannot bring us life. And so Jesus, we have this beautiful picture next week. I told you I was gonna ruin it for you, but it's good news for us. We have paradise in a garden with the resurrected king coming out of the tomb where death will never, ever reign again. And because of this life that Jesus has, the nations are slowly being changed. They really are. And so I wanna call us not to just hold on to that truth and enjoy that and preach that to our own hearts, though that's good news and we should do that, but that we would then go and, and demonstrate and declare to people about this great king who came to do this for us. And not just in Montreal, but a few weeks ago, I, I made a plea for people to, to go to the nations, the unreached people groups, 
that we wanna be a church that we can see the number of unreached people groups dwindling because they're being reached with the gospel. Lord, would you send people from this, this gathering today to those places? Because in the Psalms, we see that the nations are gonna be glad because of this king doing what we just looked at this morning. And so you are, are an epic part of this. God has, has made you uniquely to play a unique role in the renewal of all things. That's amazing. Jesus doesn't have a really long bench for you to sit on. Like, just sit there, pal. But he brings you with him. And we can do it because of his spirit that's been given to us. So let me pray to this great king for us. May our hearts rejoice. I know that we're, we're, um, we're silent rejoicers, right? So in my mind, I hear amens and like, yeah, the whole time I'm hearing good news because that's my defense mechanism for your quietness, right? Um, but may our hearts really rejoice at this. May it not just be, mm, yeah, but may our hearts leap for joy like little kids over the candy that they're gonna receive this week. And Jesus is so much better than Kit Kats, he really is. Enjoy that. Lord, thank you that you are better than than candy. Thank you that you are better. Because our, our idea of candy just grows with us. You're better than technology. You're better than our university. You're better than a career. You're better than a spouse. You're better than children. You're better than grandchildren. You're better than really good investments. You're better than, than money. You're better than health. You're better than good looks. You're better than muscles. You're, you're better than a, a paradise on this earth. You're, you're better than everything. You were the great king that we were made for and you knew that we could do nothing about it so you came and did it all for us. And so would our hearts leap for joy today like Barabbas would have been leaping. Maybe even our hearts are confused. How is it that good? I imagine the confusion of Barabbas leaving but the rejoicing once it actually set in that I'm really free. Thank you that you take seemingly busted up broken things and, and you make beautiful things out of that. Thank you that you are a God capable of doing that. I pray for us that we would have hearts of worship, exuberant, excited worship this morning that are declaring that King Jesus, you are it. I pray we would have open hands of, of worship, ready to serve you and serve others in this city. I pray that you would give us generous hearts that are ready to lay down our lives so that the nations would know that you are the true and living King. And so we commit all of the rest of this morning to you. It's all been yours, but please take it. Spirit, fill us with expectation. Fill us with joy. Fill us with excitement. Fill us with a gaze, a focus, so that we can behold our great King this morning and respond to him appropriately. We love you. Thank you. You are taking over everything, Jesus. Amen.